0: Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. It is the ninth day of January, and it is the year 2021. Um, today, I'm going to take a bit of a sidetrack. We've been talking about aging in the immune response forever, and um, at least it seems that way, but we're not going to leave it behind for very long. In fact, Today's lecture will involve a discussion of the immune response. We will wrap it back into human metabolism, as we've been doing, and also relate that to aging. But I want to bring in an element that I've done in the past, and that is a little bit of neuropsychiatry. Uh, We talked at great length about neuroscience. We talked about neurotransmitters. We talked about metabolism. We talked about various diseases of the central nervous system and associative behavioral issues coordinated with those responses, such as the sundowning in the elderly. And all of that is relevant to where we're finally leading to, which I hope will be a uh, discovery of a global construct that will allow us to understand the aging process from a biochemical perspective. And uh, that's, I think, quite on tall order, but that's really where I want to end up with these series of lectures. Ultimately, I'm going to be putting together um, a manuscript, first a review article, but probably also a full-length book on this subject, one of my many projects. At any rate, today we're going to talk about fear and not like you might normally consider a discussion of fear, which is uh, what scares you or even what the uh, initial neurological responses are. What I'm going to try to do is, as I always uh, at least intend to do in authentic biochemistry, is discuss some of the metabolic players in the fear response and continue to relate that to um, normal physiological processes that ultimately can become corrupted as one ages or indeed during other kinds of chronic illnesses. So that's where we're at, kind of a long introduction, and I didn't plan on it, but I never do plan on having such. Okay, so with that, uh, as the introduction, I'm going to give you a quote. Now, normally I don't quote uh, other people on this podcast. If I say anything, it's something I've written, or it is discussing papers and what scientists that have published work um, have to say about that research. But today I'm going to uh, quote uh, um, a um, short phrase that comes from a book uh, from an author that I read when I was really young. And this particular line stuck with me ever since then. And I think it's relevant. Uh, to our discussions. Here's a quote <clears throat> Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear is gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Now that quote comes from Frank Herbert, and it is directly from a book called Dune, which is sort of an apocalyptic science fiction novel, but it's more than that. Now, the reason I like that quote is because it has a lot of the um, pillars of what I consider significant in A frank discussion of biochemical principles related to physiology. That includes neuropsychology and neuropsychiatry. And as we go through today's talk, and this will definitely go into uh, more than one session, um, I will try to point out where I think the the parts of that quote are relevant. So with all of that, let's let's talk about corticotropin releasing factor, Now, paper published about, uh, what, 14 years ago now in a journal called Primary Psychiatry, there was a um, discussion about how chronic medical illnesses can lead to metabolic and immunological disorders and that there are anti-inflammatory inductions related to those two disorders Because of the overshooting of the immune response. So you go with a hypoimmune to a hyperimmune response. Then there are psychotropic interactions between the central nervous system and the immune system, which lead to chronic anxiety and depression, which then impact the central nervous system de novo. And the central nervous system then generates. Sequence of events related to the production of more pro-inflammatory compounds and the pathways that are embedded to uh, generate those cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, etc., which then affect uh, the peripheral part of the body and back to the CNS. So it's a cycle, and it's a cycle that these this from this paper called the pro-inflammatory chronicity cycle, which is related to anxiety and depression. So the idea is you are depressed or you're anxious or you're ill in mind. And that illness can then transfer to changes in the central nervous system. And then that can lead to chronic illnesses that present as more medical disorders, which turn out to be metabolic and immunological in nature which then trigger an anti-inflammatory response, which can allow for infection and stress-related phenomena that can cause a new sequence of disease, which can then generate more anxiety and more depression, which then leads to, again, basically a chromatin remodeling of their neurological system, including neurons and microglia uh, that will then generate the potentiation of that response for more chronic medical illness. Okay. So I like that cycle. You know, I don't like cycles in general, and I don't really think it's a cycle because it's constantly moving on because the living system is moving on. You're aging, right? And so the way that one deals with stress in their life, when they're 25, is totally different than when they're 45 or 65 or older. And the reason that that shifts is because everything that is the um, underpinning of the physiological responses are also aging. And when I say everything, I mean all the metabolic and all the gene expression systems that are normally applied to dealing with stresses. And we've talked a lot about that authentic biochemistry, so it should come to no surprise um, when I say that. Now, the corticotropin releasing factor is unique, and we're going to get into a lot of detail of it. First off, let me tell you that there are two isoforms of the receptor, and they're encoded by separate genes, and they're, co- and they're named CRF1 and CRF2. And these receptors belong to a class B subdivision within the G protein coupled receptor family, the GPCR superfamily. So you have CRF receptors that positively regulate the accumulation of cyclic AMP in response to binding to CRF. And these are coupled to G stimulatory proteins, and those function as the major signal transduction mechanism. So CRF receptors interact with two subfamilies of CRF peptide ligands. You have the mammalian hypothalamic CRFs and urocortin, and you also have the non-mammalian peptides like Sauvagine and urotensin, which are found in lower animals. But still, the CRF receptors in humans will respond to them. Now, a paper published very recently, May of this year, in Genes and Immunology, and I will put this in the show notes. I'm going to bring this forward now, and we're going to, we're going to dissect this paper in great detail once I get through all this preliminary discussion of CRF and fear response. But from this paper, we can gather uh, this general synopsis. They are explain, then of course you're well aware of this because you've listened to my glucocorticoid lectures, that the synthesis of glucocorticoids is multi-step and the initial precursor to glucocorticoids is cholesterol. And the cholesterol that is the substrate for all glucocorticoid biosynthesis is in the inner membrane, initially of mitochondria. Now that cholesterol can be mobilized to the plasma membrane by two distinct proteins called star and star-related proteins. we'll talk about those in detail later. Now, the initial effect for the induction of glucocortogenesis is for a side chain to be cleaved on the cholesterol molecule by a CYP11A1, okay? So that's a cytochrome P450, 11A1 isoform. And what that's going to produce then is a series of products. But the major product from that reaction, from cholesterol, is pregnenolone. And then pregnenolone is converted to cortisol. Now, cortisol is found in high concentration in the serum of people with major depressive disorder. From the start, I want to explain to you that depression and fear go hand in hand as behavioral output from neural correlation and then the very strong effect of free will, okay? So pregnenolone is converted to cortisol by a couple of other enzymes. It's a 3-beta-HSD, the CYP17A1, the CYP21A2, and finally the CYP11B1. So we can go through that pathway in some detail, and I will do that probably on the video so that you see the interesting interconversions that are occurring there. But glucocorticoids, as we know, play a critical role in the regulation of the immune response, and they exert their reaction uh, uh, and their actions through the glucocorticoid receptor known as GR. Now, corticosteroids are primarily produced in the adrenal gland, And we know this because this is a canonical feature of the adrenal gland, right? But maybe you don't know, and I've only mentioned it probably, oh, only a half a dozen times in the last six months, but glucocorticoids can also be produced in many other peripheral tissues or what they call extra adrenal tissues. And of course, one of the places where you can make corticosteroids directly is in the immune system cell, cell constellation. I'm going to get into that in some detail, as you might guess. But you can also make glucocorticoids directly in the skin, in various other portions of the central nervous system, and even in the small intestine. Glucocorticoid production is regulated by the adrenocorticotropin hormone, the CRH, which is the corticosterone-releasing hormone, but also cytokines two important ones, interleukin-1, 1-beta, and interleukin-6, but also tumor necrosis factor alpha. So many different intermediates are necessary to induce the production of glucocorticoids upon stress response sequale. So the bioavailability of cortisol in any given um, submembranous compartment is dependent upon its interconversion to cortisone, which is essentially inactive. And that's carried out by a unique enzyme called the 11-beta-HST1-2. So you have a system where you can make a very potent um, immunosuppressive glucocorticoid, which is known as cortisol, but by one interconversion from that one enzyme, if it's available, you render it inactive by making the ketone, okay? So from the alcohol to the ketone, that's all that reaction does. So (laughs) you can imagine a lot of regulation, and there is a lot of local and systemic glucocorticoid biosynthesis that occurs without a direct stress response, but what actually can occur in the skin because of exposure to UV light, in fact, that's why UV light is often suggested um, for some people who are suffering from chronic illnesses, and particularly those who have autoimmune diseases. Okay, So we're going to emphasize a, a, a whole discussion of this extra adrenal corticoid production in subsequent uh, uh, continuation of this um, talk. And we're going to bring in uh, some of those classical autoimmune diseases like MS, that's multiple sclerosis, of course, lupus, and also rheumatoid arthritis. We may even touch back on skin inflammatory disorders like psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. And ultimately, I'm going to put this into the framework of the immune response in the aging human central nervous system. Okay. So that's kind of where You know, the initial phases of where we're starting, okay. All right. So I want to remind you about how you make from the canonical pathway glucocorticoids. Remember, this involves the hypothalamus. So you get an external, it can be internal or external, but it's an environmental signal that affects the central nervous system, which alters electrochemical transmission at the synapse, which then directly impacts the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus releases a hormone at the nanogram level. It then goes into the adeno and I'll talk about that more later. Secondarily, it goes to the anterior pituitary where you make an anterior pituitary hormone at a microgram level. That then targets certain glands, which are secretory organs. And there's where you make, via more conversion, the ultimate hormone, usually in microgram and sometimes even milligram concentrations. Finally, you get the hormonal response. Now, along the way, you have feedback regulation. The ultimate hormone that you're synthesizing, such as cortisol, can go back and inhibit all the way at the central nervous le- system initiation. It can also happen at, inhibit at the hypothalamus and at the adeno You have a short feedback loops that come from the anterior pituitary, which can inhibit the adeno but also at the releasing hormone level and also at the hypothalamus. Now, at the hypothalamus, You can generate an axonal transport of oxytocin and vasopressin. Then you enter into what is known as the neurohypophysis, and you get a release. And for example, that can immediately generate uterine contractions and lactation. And that hormone, of course, is oxytocin, canonically, classically. But also that release can generate directly water uh, balance and homeostasis. And then the hormone there is vasopressin, okay? So that gives you a couple of examples <clears throat> and leads us into the more um, florid system. So the more florid system, you get neurotransmission. that can affect the release of hormones in the hypothalamus. You can release GnRH, TrH. Now, GnRH is going to be the growth hormone-releasing hormone, TRH is going to be the thymotrypin-releasing hormone. Hypothalamus will also generate, as I just said, the corticotropin-releasing hormone, which then is going to affect the adrenocortical hormone. The hypothalamus can also generate norepinephrine, which will turn on the production of beta-endorphin, alpha-MSH, and CLIP. That's from the pro opio melanocortin gene. You will also affect prolactin from the hypothalamus, both a negative and a positive response. Some prolactin goes to the mammary gland for growth and development, and some prolactin to the testes. Um, You also get follicle stimulating hormone, which is related to the gonadotropin releasing hormone. The gonadotropin uh, releasing an in, uh, inhibiting factor, which can turn on the luteinizing hormone, which is sent to the, either the testes or the ovary. In the ovary, you get after ovulation, in the corpus luteum, you make progesterone. In the testes, after interstitial cellular development, you make testosterone. Okay. The FSH also can go directly to the growth of the uh, seminiferous tubules for spermatogenesis. Into the Sertoli cells, which will produce antigen binding protein uh, as well as inhibit and other factors. So that gave you a more florid detail of the grid for uh, hormonal synthesis. Now, a paper published in Cell Death and Disease in 2016 is going to take us into a different avenue, but don't worry, we'll come back. Now, this paper. The reason I chose it is it talks about schwingomyelin phosphodiesterase or just simply schwingomyelinase and a knockout of schwingomyelinase known as SMPD3, double knockout. Now, when you knock out schwingomyelinase, that particular gene, the SMPD3, in a mouse model, you get retardation of systemic and skeletal growth and basically you get developmental dwarfism. Now, in a wild-type mouse, the SMPD3 messenger RNA is ubiquitously expressed, and the absence of the protein in the hypothalamic secretory neurons inhibits the secretion of all those proteohormones I just mentioned. Okay. So the absence of that protein and slow down the hypothalamus pituitary act growth axis itself, or the HPA axis itself is uh, hindered, and it triggers a systemic growth retardation, uh, which ultimately results in a novel juvenile dwarf phenotype. It's all from the loss of that particular sphingomyelinase. So the autonomous, the, the autonomic expression of SMPD3 in chondrocytes is also shown by functional reconstitution experiments using a double knockout, that when you express SMPD3 as a transgene, you drive chondrocyte-specific col 2A1 promoter, and that then generates the production of chondrocyte. So that, don't worry, we're going to tie that back together soon here because that's going to be associated, I'll tell you right now, with rheumatoid arthritis. Now, smpd 3 the protein, is localized in the Golgi, and that doesn't surprise anyone, because you know that the sphingomyelin is going to be trafficked to plasma membrane, where the sphingomyelin can be converted to ceramide, and ceramide rafts can be generated uh, with interaction of cholesterol in the membrane, as you recall. So chondrocytes are com- competent secretory cells And they're during the growth phase of of the system, and there's an abundant secretion from the chondrocyte of ECMs, which are uh, just extracellular matrix proteins, for enchondral ossification and longitudinal growth. And as such, when put in tissue culture, these cells that is, you get to see what the molecular events are for chondrocyte growth and development, just by looking at the production of these extracellular matrix proteins. So there appears to be a function for the sphingomyelinase in the Golgi vesicular protein transporting system, which I just mentioned to you, because the inhibition of SMPD3, which gets stalled in the Golgi because of changes in ceramide production in the plasma membrane, all of that will disrupt proteostasis-induced ER stress and you'll get a compromised chondrocyte function that will lead directly to apoptosis or ferritosis, and ultimately you'll get skeletal malformation and severe chondrodysplasia, which translates to dwarfism, you see. So the action of the sphingomyelinase and the sphingosine synthase in the Golgi essentially maintains a ratio of sphingomyelin to phosphatidylcholine, and then their congeners, ceramide and disoglycerol. You get a homeostatic control over the ratios of sphingomyelin and PC and ceramide and, D- and DAG. And what that allows for, by having either the synthesis of sphingomyelin or the degradation of it in association with glycerolipid metabolism is a remodeling of the Golgi membrane lipid bilayer, which essentially results in vesicular transport. Of course, all that gets corrupted if you have a deficiency in the sphingomyelinase, particularly the SMPD3, because you get an alteration of the formation of vesicular carriers which then alters all subsequent Golgi trafficking during growth and development. So that means that the sphingomyelinase deficiency correlates with growth inhibition, retards development, and it can manifest into juvenile dwarfism and this disorder known as osteochondrodysplasia. Okay, so just follow along here with me, please. So the sphingomyelinase is a neutral sphingomyelinase. Remember, we have acidic and neutral. This is a neutral sphingomyelinase. So it does not need low pH to function. So it's not the endosomal sphingomyelinase we spent a lot of time talking about. But it's still localized in detergent-insoluble membrane domains of the Golgi, right? Those DRMs, detergent-resistant or detergent-insoluble membrane domains. Remember those from the last talk well, two talks ago. So this sphingomyelinase sphingomyelin synthase cycle regulates sphingomyelin homeostasis and the ceramide phospholipase C independent diacylglycerol pool, okay? So there is inhibited protein transport, dysproteostasis, endoplasmic reticulum stress, and apoptosis in chondrocytes deficient in the sphingomyelinase. So the absence of that protein suppresses the extracellular matrix protein transport and secretion, and it disrupts this proteostasis phenomena, So that activates the um, unfolded protein response and the ER stress response, and ultimately it can lead to directly apoptosis. When you do a knockout of SMPD-3, results in skeletal growth inhibition and joint malformation because it disrupts glycosphingomyelin synthesis in the hypothalamic hormone secreting neurons. So what that allows for now, if you've been following, is a molecular interpretation of how the hypothalamus can induce a combined pituitary hormone deficiency and that that underlies the systemic hypoplasia of sphingomyelinase mutants. So then the loss of sphingomyelinase likely results in increases in other sphingomyelinases, such as the acidic and also de novo ceramide synthesis And salvage ceramide synthesis, all of which I talked about in florid detail in the past, which can come from the reactions associated just with sphingosine metabolism. And all of that is going to alter phospholipase C-mediated diacylglycerol enrichment of very long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids and their saturated fatty acid counterparts in that membrane lipid system. The different molecular species, all that's going to uniquely alter membrane raft-mediated signaling, and ultimately cell determination, cell destiny. Okay, including apoptosis, and that because of that programmed cell death, death being generated there, you're going to get an alteration of a global immune response. So that's why I took you through that whole pathway, okay? That's why I took you where you needed to go with that pathway. Now, I will, mo- I will point out that there are sphingomyelinases that are in circulation upon um, infection of certain bacteria. So Staph is a bacteria that will generate beta toxins. And beta toxins are neutral sphingomyelinases. And they're secreted by, by Staphylococcus aureus. And that virulence factor will actually lyse erythrocytes. And in doing so, it'll evade the host immune response. Because doing that will also allow it to scavenge nutrients and then therefore supplies bioenergetic requirements.